they had traveled so far. Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, along with their band of explorers, followed the mighty Missouri River 3,000 miles into the Rocky Mountains. President Jefferson had commissioned them to find a water route to the Pacific Ocean in 1803. The plan was to follow the Missouri River until it met with the Columbia River, which led to the Pacific Ocean. But the Missouri River ended in a series of little streams and creeks. Near Lemhi Pass on October 12, 1805, they stood with one foot on each side of a stream and thanked God that they had lived to, quote, bestride the mighty and heretofore deemed endless Missouri, unquote. Lewis and his band climbed higher through the pass that borders Idaho and Montana today. All they saw was more snow-covered mountains as they stood on the ridge looking across at the Bitterroot Range. Their two-year quest for a water route to the Pacific had failed. Lewis descended a steep slope about three-quarters of a mile to a little creek full of clear, cold water running west instead of east. He drank deeply and said, Here I first tasted the water of the great Columbia River. We call it the Continental Divide. It is the great watershed of the western United States. At that point, the water that falls from the sky or bubbles from the ground flows either west to the Pacific Ocean or east until it arrives in the Gulf of Mexico and the Atlantic Ocean. The cross of Christ is the spiritual divide. If you trace Christianity back to its essence, back to its roots, you will arrive at the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ is the watershed of Christianity. Ultimately, every person who would consider Christianity must face the cross. How a person responds to the message of the cross determines the flow of his or her life. So, my friends, it is fitting that as Paul closes this great epistle to the Galatians, he focuses on the cross. The cross has always been abhorrent to many people. Humans do not like the doctrine of the cross because the cross teaches us three truths about ourselves which we do not want to hear. Number one, we are sinners. The cross teaches us that we are utterly bankrupt spiritually. The heart of Christianity is a bloody sacrifice. It is revolting to think that the core of Christianity is the disgusting death of the Savior. The cross is revolting because our sin is revolting. We do not like to think about ourselves as revolting, so we abhor the message of the cross. Number two, our sin demands a payment. We might say that God's holy character demands a payment for sin. God's wrath is an expression of his holiness. 
It has never been popular to speak about God's holy wrath. We want to talk about a loving God. Yet God's love never denies his holiness. God's holiness meets God's love on the cross. Number three, we cannot pay for our own sin. If we could pay our own way, then the cross would not have been necessary. When Adam sinned, humanity did not become neutral toward God. Humans fell from being for God to being against God. The cross teaches us the utter futility of our ability to rescue ourselves from our own sin. We are not in a position of neutrality with God. We are in a position of enmity. We can do nothing to earn our way to heaven. Grace is offensive to the modern mind because grace teaches us that God had to pay for our sins. And this truth is offensive because we want to believe in our own self-sufficiency. We might say that the cross of Christ is the curse of the moralist. Galatians 6 verses 11 to 13. The cross of Christ is the curse of the moralist. Paul took up the quill from his secretary and wrote these words. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised, simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. Moralists are self-sufficient. Moralists like to focus on earning their own way to heaven because they take pride in their earnings. It feels good to be better than others who need salvation. I am convinced that many of us in our churches can easily fall into the trap of moralism. Notice what Paul says about this self-sufficient attitude in these verses. The moralist focuses on human approval in verse 12. Moralists want to make a good showing, Paul says. Make a good showing. The verb translated make a good showing means to play a good role or to make a good impression on other people. The moralists wanted the Galatians to be circumcised so that they would look good before their friends and neighbors. They wanted to avoid the stigma of the cross because it was abhorrent to all civilized people. They wanted to avoid persecution, so they stressed good works instead of the cross. They wanted to be Christians, yes, but only if they could still have the approval of their friends. They cared more about human approval than about the truth of God. The moralist focuses on human achievement in verse 13. These moralists were zealous to convert the Galatians into moralists. 
because they wanted to boast about their success. I mean, they were not able to keep the law themselves. No moralist ever can. But if they could draw enough to other people to join them, they would be viewed as successful in ministry. So they were trophy hunters, essentially. These moralists wanted to gather as many people as they could into their tribe of moralism in order to be a success, to be seen as a success. Numbers, counting nickels and noses, is the measure of success for moralists. And we celebrate this same mentality in our society. Winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. We treat success as a numbers game. You are successful if you sell more widgets than anyone else. You are successful if you produce more gadgets than other companies. You are successful if you have more toys than your neighbors. And we can easily transfer that same mentality into the way we measure spiritual success. The numbers game becomes a means of gauging spirituality. Popularity becomes the gauge of a church's success. Now, it's certainly not wrong to keep track of attendance and financial figures to help us plan better. But when we become production-oriented, we can begin to treat the numbers as indicative of spiritual success. We treat the church like a business, and we market the church to the consumer like we would any other product. We then evaluate our success in ministry by the numbers of consumers who buy what we are selling. Now, this way of measuring spiritual success is not new. In the early 1900s, the major American evangelists openly advertised what it would cost to save sinners. Rodney Smith, more commonly known as Gypsy Smith, advertised that he could produce converts for $4.92 a head. Billy Sunday and Homer Rodeheaver claimed to produce converts for $2 a head when they got their evangelistic system going well. Well, not being quite so crass, many treat evangelism much the same way today. George Barna, in his book entitled Church Marketing, writes that evangelism is simply, quote, another form of marketing, unquote. He says when one individual leads another to accept Christ as Savior, a marketing transaction has occurred. So we end up evaluating the success of a ministry by how many converts a missionary produces or how many people attend our church services. Bill Hull, in his book Conversion and Discipleship, warns us against this marketing mentality in church ministry. He writes, The first thing I tell pastors is don't trust the crowds. They are dangerous and fickle, and they lie to you. The late Eugene Peterson put it this way, Classically, there are three ways in which humans try to find transcendence apart from God as revealed in the cross. Through the ecstasy of alcohol and drugs, 
through the ecstasy of recreational sex and through the ecstasy of crowds. Church leaders frequently warn against the drugs and the sex, but at least in America, almost never against the crowds, probably because they get so much ego benefit from the crowds. Do you hear the warning from Eugene Peterson? We preach against drugs and sex, but rarely against crowds. Why? Well, we like the ego boost we get from the crowds. That's why. My friends, the church is not a product to be marketed to interested consumers like some widget we want to sell to them. The message of the cross must not be watered down to please humans. The Apostle Paul warned us in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 17 that we are not to be like so many people out there who are peddling the word of God for profit. We are not hucksters selling snake oil to desperate people. When we market our message, we nullify the cross. A marketing mentality turns us into nothing more than bounty hunters looking for scalps. So the cross of Christ is the curse of the moralist who looks for human approval and focuses on human achievements. By contrast, the cross of Christ is the boast of the sinner in verses 14 to 18. The cross of Christ is the boast of the sinner. Listen to what Paul writes as he closes out his letter to the Galatians. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. There is really no English word that fully conveys the meaning of this Greek word for boast. The word means to exult, to glory in something. The self-sufficient moralist glories in his abilities and so nullifies the cross. He boasts in his achievements instead of God's grace. The moralist says, I've been a deacon for 15 years in this church. I have taught a Sunday school class for 25 years. I'm a good person, and that's why I will get to heaven. The moralist has no recognition of sin and no boast in the cross. But there is no other boast than the cross for the sinner, because the sinner recognizes that he or she cannot earn his or her way to heaven. God, and God alone, is the basis of our forgiveness. God forgives us because he paid himself to forgive us. If you stop to think about it, God could not forgive us unconditionally. 
His holy character demanded payment for sin. The cross is that payment to satisfy his holiness. God paid himself on the cross for our sins, so let us glory in the cross. We have no other boast than the cross of Christ, because sinners can do nothing, nothing, to earn their way to heaven. Paul makes three assertions about the cross in these final verses. First assertion, sinners are separated from the world by the cross, verse 14. Sinners are separated from the world by the cross. The cross does not just save us for heaven. The cross separates us from the world. Paul expresses his personal testimony by saying that the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Many people claim to be followers of Christ who are not disciples of Christ. A disciple of Christ is one who is dead to this world and for whom the world is dead to him. Now that is a powerful image. I, I know that I've been crucified with Christ according to Galatians 2.20. That's clear. Now I find out that the world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. The world was made, nailed to the cross along with the old unsaved me. I died to the world, and the world died to me in the death of Christ. The world, in this verse, does not mean the people of the world, of course, for how could we evangelize them if that was the case? Paul is talking about the values, goals, and ambitions of this world system. Values, such as money, possessions, fame, and fortune, are values that should not be the obsession of a Christian. Politics and nationalism should never become the driving force in the life of a Christian. Moralism, however, is always shaped by the values of the world system in which it lives. Culture shapes values, but not so for the Christian. There is a double crucifixion that takes place on the cross. The values of the world must become dead to me, and I must become dead to those values. There's no other way to say it than to bluntly say that the goals and agendas of this world are not to shape the life of a Christian. When I stand at the foot of the cross and gaze into the Savior's eyes as he hangs there in my place, and I accept his blood shed for me, I am saying that I die to the world and its value system. And that leads Paul to his second assertion about the cross. Sinners become new creations at the cross, in verse 15. Sinners become new creations at the cross. I died with Christ on that cross, and a new person comes alive after the cross. Our past doesn't matter. Paul says we are a new creation. There is a whole new you at the foot of the cross. 
That's what it means to be born again. Old things have passed away. Everything is new. Rituals, duties, and obligations cannot produce this new life. The best morals in the world will not make you a new creation. Circumcision or non-circumcision makes no difference to the new life. The only way to have that new life is to accept it at the foot of the cross. And when we accept our new life in Christ at the foot of the cross, we will find peace and mercy from God, which is Paul's third assertion in verse 16. Sinners find peace and mercy through the cross. When Paul speaks of those who walk by this rule, he is using a word that means a standard of measurement. The standard of measurement for the Christian is the cross, not production. The standard of measurement for the Christian is the cross, not achievement. The word used here is the Greek word from which we get canon. C-A-N-O-N, one N. The word canon later came to refer to the doctrine of the church, the canons of the church. We speak of the canons of the church, meaning the doctrines that measure or define what we believe. The heart of Christianity is the gospel. The heart of the gospel is the canon of the cross. We are to walk as Christians according to the cross life. Christ bore our cross, so we must bear the crosses of others. The cross life starts at the foot of the cross and lives by the power of the cross. If you would find peace and mercy today, you will find it only in the cross of Christ. You will find forgiveness when you stop trying to earn it and instead, instead accept it on the cross. On the cross, God paid himself for your sin. And the only way to know his peace is to accept his payment. What difference does the cross make to you and me? It makes all the difference in the world. That is why Paul could write in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified on the cross. And that is why Isaac Watts could pen his powerful hymn of the cross that forces us to see that the greatest expression of our faith is the cross of Christ. When I survey the wondrous cross where the young prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See, from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, 
or thorns compose so rich a crown? His dying crimson, like a robe, spread o'er his body on the tree. Then am I dead to all the globe, and all the globe is dead to me. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Did you catch the great theology in the fourth verse of this great old hymn? Isaac Watts took it straight from Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. The cross life means, I am dead to all the globe, and all the globe is dead to me. I died to the world, and the world died to me. And it's all because of his amazing grace. I want you to notice how this great epistle ends in verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. My friends, grace means simply that God paid our way and he did it on the cross. You cannot pay any more for your sins than Jesus has already paid on the cross for your sins. It was that infinite cost that God paid for you to be forgiven. What puny payment could you possibly make to add to his blood? The only demand of grace is the sacrifice of gratitude. John MacArthur tells a parable in his book, Our Sufficiency in Christ, which I'd like to adapt as a magnificent summary of the message of the book of Galatians. A certain poor man had longed to go on a cruise all of his life. He'd seen those luxury liners and dreamed of the day that he could sail the ocean on such a luxury liner. He never could save enough money to afford a cruise and despaired of ever having the joy of that experience. But one day, a wealthy friend, knowing of his great desire, purchased a ticket on a great cruise liner for his poor friend. The poor man could not believe his eyes. His childhood dream was coming true. After looking at the literature describing the restaurant prices on the cruise ship, though, the poor man knew that he could not afford the elegant food on the liner. So he made some provisions for the week. He brought along a week's supply of bread and peanut butter to eat on his trip. The first few days of the cruise were thrilling. The man ate his peanut butter sandwiches alone in his room, but spent the rest of each day enjoying the delights of the cruise ship. After several days, he began to notice that he was the only person on board who did not eat the luxurious meals that were being prepared. Every time he was lounging on the deck, a porter would walk by with a huge meal for someone else. By the fifth day, the man could take it no longer. 
The peanut butter sandwiches seemed stale and tasteless. He was hungry, so finally he stopped a porter and asked him, Tell me how I can get one of those delicious meals. I'll be happy to earn it by working any way that you want me to work. The porter looked surprised and said, Why, sir, don't you have a ticket for this cruise? Certainly, the poor man replied, but I didn't have enough money to buy the food. But, sir, the porter said, didn't you realize meals are included with your passage? You may eat as much as you like. It's all been paid for in your ticket. I think there are many Christians who are like that poor man on the cruise ship. We munch on stale, moldy scraps of bread, trying to earn our way to God's blessings, never realizing that his grace has already paid it all. Paid it all. All that we need is provided for us by his grace. We cannot add anything to the grace he's already given to us. So I say to you, my friends, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. Christ didn't pay part of the passage and leave you to earn the rest of your fare. He paid it all. Enjoy the trip.